I'll pray and we'll start. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. It is always a gift from you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not take it for granted. And Lord, make us to be those who tremble at your word and rejoice over your word, uh, embracing your word and treasuring your word. Uh, we, we pray that you would give us the very heart uh, of the Lord Jesus, who even as a 12-year-old boy had mastered the word in such a wonderful way, uh, indicating his, his diligence and his love and his hunger and thirst after the things of his Father. May we walk in those in his footsteps, Lord, all the more uh, as we are sinners in so need of the cleansing of that word and the salvation that it proclaims to us. Lord, thank you that in this word you convey yourself to us. Everything in it is a means of our laying hold of you and giving our lives up to your will. Uh, and we pray that you would enable us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> So, um, on page 23, this great summary statement in Romans 3, as we are uh, doing this whole section on uh, man's sinfulness and his, his sinful condition, uh, this is Paul's great summary statement uh, of that. Um, and, of course, no one is excluded, and it, it's pretty severe, obviously. No one does good. And this doesn't mean, of course, that there isn't good done in the world, that there aren't people that go to work, that people don't take care of their children, all of these many things that human beings do, which indicates they're still the image of God. And we would call this common grace that still uh, is over the whole world to even enable us to have a world. You know, uh, many times human society uh, in riot conditions, uh, Los Angeles and other places where uh, people seem to be unleashed and the worst in humanity bursts forth. Uh, and we see it in certain uh, reigns, in uh, political reigns in Asia or Russia or Germany and certain things that have gone on in America, unthinkable evil uh, when the it seems like everything that holds a human being back is released, and, and look what we will do, look what we become. Uh, but this uh, was particularly Paul is saying there's no one who does any good to come forth to God. No, no one has any movement, true movement toward God on their own. Uh, we don't do anything worthy of commending ourselves to God. Uh, and so in that sense, in, in terms of doing any uh, good to move toward God, to give ourselves to God, uh, we don't because it says no one seeks for God. So that's the particular thing he's talking about. By nature, we do not seek him and we refuse him uh, from top to bottom. Um, and that's the good that we will not do. So even in the other good that we do, it's not for his glory. It's not part of our embrace of him. We may enjoy a sunset apart from Jesus Christ, but to worship and adore God and give ourselves up to his will as a result of that uh, sunset, to worship him in observing that sunset, we don't do that by nature. And so he concludes there in uh, 3.18, 
uh, with this statement, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so all that there, that, that's a huge word involving our whole response to God, uh, the, the word fear. Uh, it, it, in, it entails all those words that I have here, admiration, honor, praise, reverence, awe, obedience, trust, all of these things. By nature, we just do not give ourselves up to God. There's no fear of God by nature. Um, and so we saw Romans 8, 7, 1 Corinthians two fourteen, continuing statements about the nature of our uh, resistance to him. Um, and um, I think we have already touched on these conclusions, um, page uh, 24 and 25. But just to touch on that uh, as... Uh, summarizing a little bit of what we were saying about the utter lostness of, of mankind, the utter deadness of mankind. Um, <clears throat> and let me just mention on page 25 that number four, which I don't uh, think we really uh, got to, but um, it, this, this uh, pro- proclamation of our helplessness and our utter lostness and even our tendency not to even want God helps to create the very faith we need because we don't, it doesn't leave me thinking, well, I've got a few things wrong with me, but I can make a commitment and I can be a Christian. I can do this, you know. But it, 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 this teaching tends to leave us utterly helpless, realizing, gosh, I'm just undone. I'm lost. There's nothing in me that would ever seek God. And so we really cry out in helplessness like a lame man did to Jesus or, or like a blind man would to Jesus. And those aren't just sitting there saying, well, those were physically, you know, desperate people, but we're not really that desperate. We are that desperate. Those are pictures of how desperate we are as human beings spiritually, as desperate as they were physically. And I, I think that in America we reserve those kinds of things for, you know, sex addicts and people in prison, et cetera, these people that we think are just have lost everything in life and they've come to the end of their rope. And so they really cry out to God, you know, for mercy. But as we're going to see a bit later, uh, in Luke 18, uh, Jesus, uh, pits two people, it puts two people before us. One is a Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like other people and thanks God that he has a you know, a lot of righteousness about his life. And he's able to avoid a lot of things in his life. And the Pharisees naturally would think that uh, they're they're his audience, as Jesus is telling the story. And they're naturally going to think, yeah, our our man, there he is. He's he's thanking God and and he's, he's not doing all these things other people do, especially not this robber, this horrible person that robs poor people for his own gain, this tax gatherer. Uh, he's got a, he's way closer to God. And all the tax gatherer can do is say, have mercy on me, the sinner. And from a Pharisee's viewpoint, he ain't got a chance, you know. I mean, the Pharisee is way, way closer to him, way more likely for God to look upon him and say, you're my man, you know, look at all that you avoid, look at all that you do. Who is this? And all he can say is, have mercy on me. Oh, that's not going to do it, dude. You know, you just come into God and just say, have mercy. And then, of course, Jesus flips it at the end and says, I tell you, this is the man that was righteous when he walked out of there, not the Pharisee. Shocking statement to the Pharisees. It was the tax gatherer, the robber, who up to that point had been robbing people. 
And instead of the religious guy who's really working hard at it, they both go out. He says, this man is just before God and this man is not. You know, shocking statement. But it shows that uh, all of us are to approach God in that way. And all of us tend to approach him one of those two ways. We tend to say, Lord, I'm absolutely helpless. I have nothing in myself to serve you. I need your grace from A to Z. Save me. Really mean it. Save me. You know, save me from my guilt. Save me from the power of sin. Save me from myself. Save me from all that opposes you. Or we have a basic approach that, Lord, maybe I need a few things fixed. I'm doing pretty good. I'd like for you to be my friend, etc. You know. So um, this is a, it's a, it's tough hearing these things of the seriousness of our sin, but it's the very thing that gives us finally that freedom to admit what we are before God and to really de- declare it honestly and confess it to him and to know his, his love and forgiveness. Uh, not because we're hiding or trying to bring something to him, but because we know he, he looks at me as I am and he forgives me in Christ. That's the greatest freedom in the world. And it's, um, so the whole, uh, let me just read a passage. You want to turn there, you can, but it's Romans chapter 11. Just to show, here's, here's the objective of God. Uh, Romans uh, 11 verse 32, which is at the end of his whole treatise on grace and God's mercy from, uh, starting with sin in chapter 1 to uh, God's redemption, chapters 3 and following. But notice what he says in uh, verse 32. God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So there's the point. I'm shutting you up, or as he says earlier, different, bit different language in chapter 3, uh, he says he's, he speaks as he has in verse 19, that every mouth be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Well, that's the same basic thing. Stopping every mouth, stopping our excuses, stopping our uh, statements about what we have and how righteous we are, just shutting us up so that we all realize I'm accountable to God's justice. I'm under condemnation. Same thing in Romans 11 uh, 32, consigned all to disobedience so that we all have been labeled and, and, and brought to uh, the verdict of disobedience and condemnation. But what's the point? That he might have mercy. See, So it's not, it's not guilt for guilt's sake. It's not to heap upon us you know, regret, etc. But it's to bring us to mercy. And how can we know mercy unless we know that we're in need of mercy? And that's the point. Um, the doctor, you're not going to submit to uh, a serious uh, treatment unless you're convinced and know that you have a serious problem. And so um, we give ourselves up to Christ because we know our, our condition is serious. Okay, then the promise of Christ. Okay, um, this, uh, first of all, I want to just talk about it in terms of the meaning of Christ throughout Scripture. Uh, and I think this helps us so much to, to realize that whatever part of Scripture we're reading, in some way we are telling, uh, we are hearing this story. The, the new uh, children's book, uh, children's Bible, uh, has the little phrase, every story whispers his name. 
that one we've got down there. Uh, and and that's uh, an excellent way to put it. Every story whispers his name. Everything in there in some way or fashion is pointing to the centerpiece of Jesus Christ. And the Bible has no meaning apart from Christ. And we would say that the Old Testament has no meaning apart from Christ. So that if the Jews finally reject Christ, everything that they have means nothing at all because the whole point of all those things was Jesus Christ. Take him away and you take the whole meaning of, of the Old Testament away. So um, as I have here, it's a romance story in which man turns his back on God and God at the greatest possible cost to himself seeks after and restores man to himself forever. That's a good summary, I believe, of the Bible. It starts early, right in Genesis 3, man turning his back on God. So you see, God gets to that part immediately because that's the story. This is what happened. Man turns away from God. And then the unfolding of that uh, is the whole rest of the Bible of how it leads up to the greatest possible cost of the sacrifice of his own son, how he sought after and restores us to himself in Christ and that we become his people forever. Uh, so um, this is a, a good short way to think about the Bible and to fit everything into it. So, as I say, no matter where you dip into the Bible, it's always telling some aspect of the story. The story of God's salvation is the heartbeat of every story, the point of every event, the ultimate purpose to which everything points. And because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, ultimately accomplishes this salvation and makes known the Father in all His glory, all Scripture in some way anticipates Christ, reveals Christ, describes Christ, and makes known Christ. And the famous statement of uh, Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Uh, it says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Um, so uh, there you have it. The promise of Christ, uh, the, the meaning of, of all of scriptures. Um, on the next page, I do just a little bit of a... Uh, outline so that you can fit all of wherever you are in reading the Bible. You can know where you are in that story. Um, dividing into the, the Old Testament is the coming of God's salvation, right? And then down there in the other uh, section, the arrival of God's salvation. So the coming of God's salvation, there's a foreshadowing, a preparation, the bud, if you want to think of it, that's not opened yet, but it's the bud of the flower. And as some have put it, the new is in the old concealed, okay? The New Testament is in the old concealed. It's in the bud. And down there, uh, at the arrival of God's salvation, instead of foreshadowing, there's the reality. Instead of a preparation, there's the fulfillment. Instead of the bud, there's the full flower, and now the old is in the new revealed. So the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new now revealed. The meaning of that old is completely opened up in the New Testament. I like to think of it as a cave that uh, had a small opening in, in this giant room. You could see some of the stalagmites and stalactites and some of the beauty of it, but in the Old Testament, it's though this 
uh, whole mouth of the cave has been opened to a hundred foot wide, a hundred foot tall, and light is just pouring in there, and you see the glorious stalagmites and stalactites. And so the Old Testament now lights up beautifully, wonderfully, in a way it never had before, because now the fulfillment, what it was pointing to is here in Christ. So we don't discard the Old Testament. We now go to the Old Testament with renewed vigor, searching out our Lord Jesus in it and and seeing uh, meanings that have always been there that we didn't fully realize. So uh, that's uh, a good uh, overview of just the old and the new. And then the details, notice Genesis 1 through 11 is just a setting of the stage, all right? It's creation, it's the fall, it's recreation with the flood, and then sin causes man to try to build a monument to himself in in the Tower of Babel, and he's scattered. So now you have a world uh, of sinful man scattered throughout the world in the nations, uh, recreated through the flood and God's promise that he's going to hold steady creation now. And it's interesting that you've got... Uh, Babel with the scattering of the nations and then that's in chapter 11 of Genesis and then the whole next phase of the Bible that begins in chapter 12 and he comes to one man Abraham and he says through you I will bless the nations and of course that's no accident that those are back to back the nations are scattered because of sin And now God, in a a very interesting way, comes to one man and says, In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. And Paul, later in Galatians 3, actually makes something of seed. He says, that's singular, and he meant the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, in your seed, in your descendant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we would say that uh, the setting is... The man has sinned, he is scattered in the nations because of the Tower of Babel, and God comes and basically promises, I will gather the nations in Jesus Christ. I will gather the nations in Christ. Now, of course, there's a long time from Genesis chapter 12 to Matthew chapter 1, okay? But we have right there the statement that he is going to bring this about in Christ. And if you read Galatians 3, Paul makes a lot of what is promised in Abraham is fulfilled in Christ. And isn't it interesting in Acts chapter 2, when this Christ is exalted, okay, Christ is at the throne, and he pours out his Holy Spirit in the new age And the nations that are gathered with all these different languages are brought together in Christ because the Holy Spirit is poured out and the the people of God proclaim the the, uh, works of God in their languages. So this is a reversal of Babel. So it's just interesting as you see this flow of biblical theology here that the nations are scattered. He promises to bring them together in Christ. And then when Christ is exalted, the first act of his uh, exaltation and the first sermon preached, the Holy Spirit is poured out and all of these nations hear uh, the grace of God. And we, uh, 3,000 people from these varied nations, these varied uh, peoples scattered all around the Mediterranean basin are brought to Jesus Christ. So... 
Um, there's a little capsule where sin scatters people and divides people. Jesus Christ draws them together for the new humanity. Okay, so that's part of the the story. Um, but you see uh, the the roots of the people of God be there. Genesis 12 through 50. These are the patriarchs: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then, uh, 400 years later, going from Genesis, the end of Genesis to Exodus, the planting of the people of God, that's Israel. That's the people. He, he promised Abraham he would make a nation of him, and this became Israel. And then you have these, uh, the history is, is pretty simple. Exodus all the way through Chronicles is the planting of the people of God, of Israel. So Exodus through Deuteronomy, you come up to the land. Joshua, you go into the land. Judges, you're in the land with judges. First Samuel through Kings, you're in the land with kings. So that's a very basic, very simplified. But at least when you're dipping in one of those books, you can say, hey, I'm right here uh, the, the, among the people of God, and, and I know where I am in God's uh, plan here. Uh, Ezra Nehemiah, simply the replanting of the people of God. Israel is reborn. And then you have the uh, other things like the wisdom literature and the prophets. And so with the New Testament, it's pretty simple too. This is the grafting in of the people of God. So you have the root of the people of God, the patriarchs, the planting of them, Israel, and the replanting, and now the grafting in of the people of God, the Gentiles. And it's pretty simple. The story of Christ, the story of the early church, and then the letters. So the Bible is, you know, it, it's 66 books. And you think, gosh, I can't even begin to understand it. And I'll let me just say from my perspective, I hardly ever read the Bible where I don't understand, where I understand everything I'm reading, okay? I just, that's why it's so hard for me to read uh, the Bible because I come across so much that I want to figure out, you know, so a reading plan is just devastating for me. <laughs> just makes me feel guilty because I always want to, you know, hunker down and figure out what's this paragraph mean? What does this sentence mean? What in the world is Isaiah referring to here? Cause I don't get it, you know? So, um, if you have that problem, welcome to the club. Um, so the Bible is, is hard in many respects, but it's, it's laid out pretty simply. The story is simple, and that can help you find your way there, you know, to say, hey, it's basically this story. I've, I've got to find where in the story I am. Um, well, I'm not going to read through this next part that much. Just uh, let you know that the um, scriptures are really uh, fixed <clears throat> around the idea of covenant, um, but just the fact that covenant means God's um, basically marriage promise to be his people's God, you know. And that's the glory of the scripture. And this is where it says uh, on page 26, the romance story, and God uh, restores man to himself. The covenant is his means of saying uh, in the most dramatic way, I will be yours. And you know, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the, uh, what he did in Genesis 15, cutting the animals in half, and that was the common way that people made a covenant. And you, you, you walk between, the two men would walk between the, the halves of the animals, and basically you're saying, may I be torn apart like this if I don't keep this covenant? 
That's a strong statement. Uh, a couple, uh, Sam and Amy recently got married and they had something of that phrase in their vows. Uh, uh, may, how, however severe it may be, what God may do to me if I don't keep this vow, however severe he might do it. You know, it's like, whoa. You know, but they said, yeah, that's what we want to say. However severe. God, do it to us if we don't keep this vow. So it's kind of like walking between the, you know, pieces of animal, you know, to keep that vow. Um, So here in Genesis 15, God uses the common vow, uh, covenant keeping method. And here's a, uh, a, like a flaming oven that passes between the animals. And that's God saying to Abraham, may I be torn apart, Abraham, if I don't keep this vow. And of course, he ended up taking upon himself flesh and, and sacrificing himself in order to establish this covenant, in order to save us in this covenant. So we couldn't even imagine back then what it would mean when he says, I will be your God. You know, that it would mean I will become flesh. I will bear your sins. I will rescue you at the cost of my own son. We couldn't fathom that it would mean that. And then when he says, I will be your God and I will be with you, that that would mean he's actually going to take flesh and he's going to identify with us and take on our sin and take the guilt of our sin. And then he so identifies with us, what he earns becomes ours and his inheritance becomes ours. We couldn't fathom when he said, I will be with you, what that was going to mean in the end as he took upon himself flesh. But it's all flowing from this covenant. He, he binds himself and then he binds himself at the cost of his own blood to do us good. And all of that is to do us good. When he says, I'll be your God, it's not, you know, that's not a, to be your God to hurt you. It's to be your God to do everything good for you, you know, to save you, to rescue you so that we'll be together forever. It's an amazing, amazing thing that God comes to us in this way. So... Um, it's the story of God seeking us out, obviously. Um, the, another implication of the bond, uh, this covenant, is that he uh, covenants with one people. Um, I won't go into this in detail, but just you'll notice the language of Scripture is that it's not... Uh, when he covenants, he doesn't covenant with Israel, okay... And then start all over with the church, so to speak. But that passage in Romans 11 says that there is this tree of the people of God. And some of the tree is cut off because they were unbelievers, the Jewish people. But then he says, you were grafted into this tree. But it's one root of the people of God. And so uh, you have Jew and Gentile in one tree, we're grafted in. And even says, and if the Jews, if they believe, they'll be grafted back into their tree. If you were grafted in as a wild uh, vine, surely they can be grafted in because it was their vine originally. But it's, we're one people. And that's why Paul will say, all of those who belong to Christ, as he does in uh, Philippians 3, I have there, um, he calls these Jews 
cut off, who don't believe in Christ, they're the mutilation. They're no longer the circumcision, but they're the mutilated ones. Their circumcision means nothing anymore because they cut them off themselves off from Messiah. But he calls these Gentiles, whether or not they really are circumcised physically, he said, we are the circumcision. In other words, we're the people of God. We're the true Jews now. Um, and the Jews have, have ceased being the people of God because they cut themselves off from the Messiah of Yahweh that Yahweh sent. And therefore, they've rejected Yahweh. That would be the, the view of the New Testament. So uh, we are uh, viewed because of the covenant as one people, uh, Old and New Testament. You get a little feel for this at the bottom, bottom of 28 when quoting Amos... Uh, they talk about the coming of the Gentiles, the Gentiles believing as a fulfillment of this passage. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. You'd think if you hear that in the Old Testament, rebuilding the tent of David, it would have to strictly be the Jewish uh, people. But he quotes this verse to indicate by the Gentiles coming to Christ, it's a fulfillment of the rebuilding of the tent of David. So God is building the tent of David with Jews and Gentiles, one people. Um, So uh, it's a wonderful thing to see that in the scripture of how the same thing said about the Jews, uh, Exodus 19, that they would be a special kingdom is now said about us as uh, Gentiles in 1 Peter 2.9. Um, other passages here that, in, that indicate those things. Um, and then verse uh, on page 30, let me just mention uh, the God's bond and covenant, what it means in our everyday life. Um, as we see here in Romans 8.28, uh, don't have all of that passage, but just a few Uh, parts of that. But notice if he covenants to be your God, what it means for you personally. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, that's his bond. That's his covenant. All things will work together for good. Because he's for you, nothing can be against you. Because he didn't even spare his own son, he'll give you all things. That's part of his being your God. His covenanting to do you good fleshes out in your personal life in that, in that way. So that he can say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because God has covenanted to be our God and nothing can separate him from us because he is, he's bonded himself to us. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's why his beginning lordship, as we talked about his lordship in creation and his sovereignty, um, as I say here, it intersects with his covenant bond. He commits, us, he commits himself to do us good and since he is Lord, nothing can interfere with his purpose to do us good. That's why we treasure his lordship and sovereignty because in his lordship and sovereignty, he can make statements like this. I'm going to work all things together for good. He can do that. Nobody can stop him. Nothing can stop him from doing that 
That's just glorious. He's running the show. If he's, if he's for us, then basically nothing can be against you. Nothing at all. Um, I don't know if I have the passage in here, but um, that's why this passage in first, at the end of 1 Corinthians 3 is so uh, astounding. But it's really saying the same thing as, as this in Romans. They were, uh, in Corinth, they were boasting as to which preacher was their favorite, you know, which is a real bright thing, of course. <laughs> uh, I like Cephas. I like Apollos. No, I like, I like Paul. So they're at each other's throat, you know, voting on their favorite. And he says at the end of chapter 3, uh, he says, Let no one boast in men. Why? Because all things are yours. Why, why are you nitpicking about, well, Paul is my... Well, look, he says, all of these are yours. If it's Paul or Paulus or Cephas, they're all yours, but the world is yours. Life and death, the present, the future, everything's yours. And by that, he means there's nothing that doesn't belong to you and ultimately serve your good. Nothing is against you. Everything belongs to you because everything is in the Father's hand and he devotes everything to your good. You're the heir of all of this and nothing is against you anymore. How can you be nitpicking about what you've got or don't, don't have, you know, what you have or don't have? <clears throat> so uh, an incredible argument. You know, on this one little small issue, you might think in one church to say, let's think about the ultimate meaning of all things of how God is for us and nothing doesn't belong. Everything belongs to you because of that. So that that bond, that covenant that by which he commits to his people, boy, what implications it has for each one of us in our personal lives. And then on page 31, uh, this covenant bond has its reflection in our covenant bond to one another. Um, Ephesians 4 is a, one of the great passages that talks about this bond as he begins by talking about the way he's gifted his church there in verse 11 and 12. And then he starts talking about through the gifting of the leaders of the church, we attain a unity of the faith, a mature manhood, uh, we are no longer children, etc. And then verse 16, notice how uh, the, the interplay of the whole body, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So that we are built up in love only as we're unified as a body and as we're pouring out our lives for each other as a body. Um, so our bond to God makes us bound to each other as well. And these other verses, um, you know, are, show forth a need to commit ourselves to each other daily. He even says there in Hebrews 3 or Hebrews 10. <clears throat> Here's an interesting statement. Uh, he says, don't neglect meeting together but encourage one another all the more as you see the day of drawing near and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It, uh, it's interesting that you know that worship is the central feature of their gathering together and communion was a central feature. But the writer of Hebrews can put this as the central feature. 
let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglect meeting together. As though this is the final end in view, even of our worship and glorifying God, is that we stir one another up for love. So our bond to God and our love to Him pours itself out in our bond and love to one another. So covenant has, therefore, a a horizontal aspect as well as this vertical aspect of our relationship to the Father. All right, well, we'll we'll start next week uh, the person and work of Christ. And um, we'll, we'll... We start right there talking about uh, using the phrase from the questions that are addressed to you from uh, your vows that Jesus Christ is the Son of God uh, and the like. So we're going to have to move through this. There's a lot for you to read on your own, but uh, you've got the material here uh, that we can let you read, um, you know, whenever you can get to it. There's some things really critical that I'm going to talk about in terms of receiving Him and and trusting in Christ and the like, but uh, this section on Christ is some 20 pages, Um, but that's because we think He's the center of everything, right? So (laughs) I hope this could be a, a neat collection for you to study Christ, you know, for months and years to come because kind of pieced a lot of... I hate lists of verses because you have to sit there and look them up. And that's why I just I like to publish them. So you can just go from passage to passage to passage. And they're right in front of you. It's easy to compare one passage with another because you can just look straight from one to the next. So I hope that will be helpful for you for a long time in studying Christ. So, Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this uh, glorious covenant, uh, this, this binding of yourself to us forever to be our God and to do us good and what it means to each one of us and what it means for your church that you will work all things together for your church no matter what tragedies the church may encounter what disasters may be in this world what political upheavals may occur Lord nothing can stop uh, your lordship nothing can interfere with your plans for your people nothing can interfere with your gathering us to yourself and keeping us and bringing about the final restoration of this world and resurrecting us from the dead. Lord, nothing can stop you. All things are ours, even in the midst of the worst things. All things are ours because God is ours. And Lord, we thank you for such a commitment. We thank you for such a story here in the Bible, Uh, your word that you've given to us, this story of all stories, this glorious story, romance of your coming after us and uh, winning us to yourself and drawing us after yourself forever. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.